Hello, my name is Jolly Bimbachi. My children have been kidnapped to Lebanon over seven years ago, and I have not seen them in a little bit over four years. This is my story. Thank you all for joining me today. My name is Neil Dowra and I'm hosting Jolie Bambishi. Jolie has two sons that were abducted from Canada to Lebanon. And this episode is really dear to my heart because I'm recording now from Lebanon in a town very close to where Jolie's sons were abducted to. Jolie got very little support from her government in Canada to get her boys back. And so she came to Lebanon to do her best to resolve the situation and bring them back to Canada if she wasn't able to fix the situation with her husband. That led her to bringing her boys to Syria in hopes of reaching Turkey. Unfortunately, she was taken hostage by a local militia group in Syria, held there for weeks while her boys were returned to their father in Lebanon under some very scary and depressing circumstances. And so today I'm going into more detail with Jolie about her story and the despair that her sons and herself has been have gone through over the last seven years. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us today, Jolly. I would love if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your children. Yeah, so I have uh, three children, actually. I have one daughter from a previous marriage who's still with me right now. And I have two young boys who were abducted by their father to Lebanon from Canada when they were four and six years old. We had a really, really good life. My kids were excelling in school. They spoke English, French, and Arabic at the time. They played soccer every Friday night was their their soccer day or like either practice or game. We um, did a lot of outings together. We did a lot of art together. Our house was filled with um, just so much joy and happiness and people coming over and friends and love. And I had a really good life with my boys. Like some days I feel like it's just like a happy ending movie that just went away, you know? So can you tell us a bit more about the day that they were abducted and if there were any signs that were evident to you prior to their abduction? But on the day that it happened, I actually consented to let my boys travel with their father. So I've lived with a guilt since then that, you know, I've, I've put a lot of blame on myself. I know it's not my fault because I didn't know and I trusted my partner at the time. So they were supposed to go for one month to go visit their family in Lebanon. And we were in the process of purchasing a house here in Canada. So my ex-husband, who what we were still married at the time, sorry convinced me to take the boys with them because of three factors. When we were going to buy a house, we still owned a house in Lebanon together. So we needed to sell our house in Lebanon to put a down payment on the house here in Canada. And so he kind of convinced me that because of finances, once we start paying mortgage, it would be harder to go back and visit his family. And so this was a perfect time to take the boys back and see his mom. Also his mom, so the boy's grandmother at the time, 
was not doing well because the youngest son of the family was in prison for a while. They didn't know where he was. and They couldn't reach him. I believe he was in prison for terrorism ties, but I don't know if he was actually convicted. I don't know, like, the end story after that. And so I had a lot of respect for the family I married into, of course. They were my family, and I agreed to let my boys go. It was during Ramadan, and so um, they were supposed to come back for Eid. And then they just never came back. Is that what happened? Yeah. So about a week into their visit or 10 days into their visit, I started hearing rumors from people and family. You know how um, everybody was getting together and people were saying that he's probably not coming back. And I I blew it off. I was just like, he's just probably just so happy to be back that he's, um, you know, enjoying enjoying being back home. Like anybody would would be like, oh, I never want to leave again. But in the end, you go back to your home. And then finally, he, I think two weeks into the visit, he called me and said that he's not coming. If I ever want to see the kids again, I have to come to Lebanon. He also told me if I wanted a divorce, that would be fine. If I don't want a divorce, then I can come back to Lebanon, live with him. He didn't want me to work anymore. He doesn't want me to go visit my own family unless he takes me and brings me. He said he wanted me to be um, a housewife and to just be at home all the time. He talked about me wearing a niqab at the time I wore a hijab and just all kinds of things to restrict me from my own rights or my own identity. He also threatened to put me in uh, something called Bet al Ta'a. So it's like a, I guess, like a house arrest for wives or something. I don't know if that still even exists, but it, w- it came up in some conversation. He said if I wanted to divorce him, that would be fine too. And the only way I would see my kids is when he would let me. So all in all, it was not a good situation. I have no idea where it came out from. We were still, as I thought, like happily married. And any married couples have little problems here and there. It's not like anybody lives 100% happily all the time. But I never thought our problems really would have led to this. I just want to clarify also that one year prior to him leaving, he had actually hit me in front of my kids. So I took the children and left. We resolved it. We we came back. He had changed a lot. So I thought like things were actually really, really good between us. It turned out that he was planning this the whole year to try to convince me to take the kids since that incident. So since your children were abducted, have you had any contact with them at all? Um, So the first two and a half years almost, I had barely any contact. They were extremely limited. Like when I did have contact, there was always somebody in with them. There's always someone talking to them also at the same time or distracting them. They were abducted in May of 2015. I went to Lebanon in like November, December of 2017, and I tried to go see my boys. And there's a whole other story there where I took them out of the country kind of illegally, not kind of actually. And since that whole ordeal, I have been having regular contact with my boys. They have also been limited, but uh, it has been mostly on a weekly basis for the last four years of uh, consisting of like phone calls of two to 10 minutes on Sunday nights, usually. And the boys are like half asleep. Sometimes they even fall asleep in these conversations. So usually they'll call me between 11 or 12 Lebanon time. And it's about four or five o'clock my time. So they're very, very tired at that time. I just recently got a court order 
for six hours of phone calls with my boys. Um, last week, we just got the first week. He still didn't allow me to talk those six hours to speak with him for those six hours, but at least um, there is a court order right now. I do have a feeling he's going to appeal it because um, that's just the thing that he's probably going to do. I think he thinks six hours is probably a lot for a mother to talk to her son. So we'll see how that goes. So I just want to backtrack a bit. Okay, so the boys are abducted to Lebanon illegally, internationally. You're still married at the time to your ex-husband. Correct. So like, what did, what did you try and do? What were, you know, did you alert the authorities in Canada? How did they support you or not support you perhaps? Yeah, I did. As soon as, um, I think when this, these kind of use hits you, it hits you like a ton of brick, like everything went black. Everything was sad. Everything was just dark around me. I didn't know what to do. Of course, like uh, who do you call in this time? Who's going to answer? Um, I did a little bit of research. Uh, I contacted Global Affairs Canada finally, and they set me up with a caseworker. And I was like, okay, this is it. They're going to get my kids back. But they have a lot of restrictions when it comes to international jurisdiction. And I know that now at the time I was so hopeful and I was angry that they couldn't do anything. I understand it more now that there is limitations because of different jurisdictions in different countries. I don't think Canada has an agency that is fully equipped to handling and to deal with international parental child kidnappings. I also contacted the RCMP, who after I think about a, a few months to a year, had contact with my ex and tried to you know, talk to him and negotiate with him to bring the boys back. There is a red flag notice on his name as a criminal, and there's a yellow notice on my boy's as abducted, and that's through Interpol. If he doesn't leave Lebanon and goes to a country where Interpol is effective, then not much can be done. However, if he ever decides to fly out of Lebanon, then they could apprehend him and bring the boys back, like the authorities can. So I know also that Lebanon is not a signatory of the Hague, so you had no option to file a Hague Convention application, correct? I know. That's correct. And I honestly thought that they were because I think at one time there was a lot of talk about Lebanon signing the Hague and then they pulled out last minute. I um, believe that they were at the time, but I realized soon after they weren't. Yeah. And I just want to take this opportunity to let our listeners know we have another podcast episode with attorney Mohammed Ayubi, who is a local attorney in Lebanon. And he discusses a lot about why Lebanon hasn't signed the Hague and what other tools parents can take locally in the justice system to try and get access or return order for their children. So if anybody's interested in listening to that, please, you know, look for his episode on our podcast page. So did you try to do anything um, with the Lebanese authorities or perhaps the Canadian ambassador to Lebanon? Were, were you able to get any support from them? I honestly felt I had no support from anybody. I did When I did come to Lebanon, I tried to contact the Canadian embassy. They said there's nothing much that they really can do. And I said, well, what about like, I just bring the boys and just stay there. And they said, they kind of advised me not to. I was hoping that my government would step in and do something and bring the boys back. If they could have legally done something, it would have sent a big message to anybody else who was thinking of kidnapping their children or who were in the same situation. Because there's, there are 
quite a few abductions done to Le- in Lebanon. And it's just not a good image for Lebanon, first of all, that these abductions happen. I think Lebanon is one of the top countries that is more popular for these abductions. So interestingly, you you mentioned that there was an American mother, I think about three years ago, named uh, Rochelle or Rachel Smith. Mm-hmm. And her son was abducted to Lebanon. And she was able, I think maybe after one or two years, to actually get her son returned to the U.S. I'm not sure how much you know about that case, but uh, you know, if there are any that you noticed different actions that were taken perhaps by the U.S. authorities compared to the Canadian authorities? Yeah, so I know Rochelle and another woman also both got their kids back within the span of a week, both from Florida, both from the U.S. They had a really strong advocate in the, in the American government. And I feel like the American government is usually more aggressive and assertive in what they want and get it, whereas the Canadian government is more passive. They had a Senate, I think a representative from the Senate who fought for them and, you know, was relentless in his plight to get the American government to do something. Some connections happened with the um, the Lebanese em- embassy over there, too. And things moved in Lebanon for them in the court case. And it was just like all of it just came together at once. I also believe that if Canada put financial pressure on Lebanon, things would change for my situation and as well as other people's situation. I think it came down to like with the American um, situation with the Rochelle and the other women, and there were four kids in total. I think it came down to um, monetary reasoning also. I think that played a part. I'm not 100% sure in that, but I feel like a country like Lebanon that depends so much on financial aid would come to the negotiation table and do the right thing to help their people financially, I guess. Yeah, I I think that makes sense. A lot of uh, donors, you know, money coming in for humanitarian assistance in the country come from Canada and the U.S. and other Western nations. Yes. So basically, you're you're really left alone. Two young boys abducted to the Middle East. You're talking about, you know, basically being told to your by your husband that you either have to convert to this very conservative, freedom-limiting lifestyle, or or the chance of you ever seeing your sons again is almost zero. And your government isn't doing anything to help you, your representatives doing very little. So you came to Lebanon and and you tried to take matters into your own hands, correct? I did, yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, I came to Lebanon in uh, November of 2017 with the intention of taking my kids uh, out of the country if I had to, but with the hopes that the Canadian government and Lebanese government would kind of like do something. I might have, you know, looking back said, maybe I should have pushed harder, maybe I should have done this or maybe I should have done that. But I honestly had no support from any of the those organizations or entities. And I felt very alone. Like, I felt like there is no support from either government, especially my own government. Like, you know, a country where I've lived most of my life, where I pay taxes, where I, you know, I'm an abiding citizen. And I felt like betrayed in a sense that my children were just not enough of a matter for the Canadian government to look into. So I was with a friend or an an acquaintance that I've met because of my ordeal. 
who volunteered to help me. And he came into contact with some people in Lebanon who could smuggle us out of the country. The whole plan was for us to go to Cyprus by boat. Things changed at the last minute and they took us through Syria during the war in Syria. And they kind of took us walking through the border. So I guess there's like a no man's land kind of between Lebanon and Syria where it's a really rugged territory. They drove us up there. We walked through that rugged territory. I almost carried my boys through the whole, like, I think it was two kilometers of walking, but it took us quite a few hours to walk through it. Once we got to the other side, there was a car waiting for us. Everything was set up and planned really, really nicely. So it seemed at the beginning. So once we got there, there was a car. They took us to like a a safe house, I guess. Um, They brought us food. We slept. It was a long night. The next day, another car picked us up, also took us to another safe house. And it was just on and on and like that through Syria for the couple of days that we were on the road. And then finally, we got to this little town where for some reason they made us sign our name in a makeshift police station, I I guess I could say. They were a town that was full of people fighting the regime at the time. And I guess it was for their own safety that they like to know who's coming in and who's leaving. So anyone who comes into the town, I guess it doesn't matter who you are. I don't think they just like picked us out of the crowd. They ask everybody to sign their name. And for some reason, they do a little research. So at the time, my phone was off the whole time. I had no idea what was going on. And I guess my ex-husband's cousin posted something on Facebook about me tagging my name, sent out letters to all his affiliates all over the Middle East or... I think he also has connection to these organizations in Syria because why else would they like, I'll explain it more later, but why else would they want to take my boys back? So there was something on Facebook. I remember we signed our name that night. We went to a safe house, slept. They came the next morning and picked us up and they showed me the Facebook post. And in the Facebook post, it said that I wanted to bring the boys to Canada to let them live in a non-believing country and turn them into Christians. And already my daughter had taken off her hijab at the time. So that was a well-known fact um, that was mentioned also. And I was an abusive mother and all kinds of stuff. And that I have took the boys away from a, a pious man who devoted all his life to raising them. And so they showed me the post and they explained it. I don't read Arabic, so they translated it for me. And I was just speechless. They had pictures of the boys and of me. And so they're like, now we have to figure out what to do because they told me I put them in a bad situation. And I told them, well, there's no situation. Just like pretend you didn't see me or let me go. Like. They are my boys. They put me through a court process of like, I think it was five days. So at this point, I really don't know what day it is. So they took me to court in Syria in this little village and run down court that is not in use anymore. They just pretended. I'm sorry to interrupt. So this group is like, like ISIS or some kind of ISIS related organization. They're not ISIS. They're called Tahrir al-Sham, this group. Okay. It's another rebel group. Yeah. No, no official government group or anything, (laughs) just a militia group. (laughs) Just a militia group. Okay. It was so chaotic. There there was so much drama and I was involved in all of their drama for some reason. 
um, that they would take me to the sheikh every day at the courthouse to tell them my story. And the sheikh was like, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. Don't worry. Just tell me more. Tell me this. What happened? Why? Like, anyway, I kind of told them my whole life story. I even got my dad to talk to him. People from my home city wrote him letters saying, you know, let her go. Like she said, she's a good person. Like whatever was said on Facebook or whatever said to you from the other side is not true. And like how much I've helped Syrian refugees when they came to Canada. In the end, they said that they were going to, sorry, some of this is still a blur because I like, it's such a traumatizing experience that sometimes I just get stuck. But um, they told, they finally came up with the decision that they were going to return the boys to their dad and that I would be sent to Turkey to come to Canada. So at the time, my goal was to get to Turkey, to the Canadian embassy, because once I'm in Turkey, they can't touch my boys. Uh, we didn't make it to Turkey, obviously. Um, they caught us. I'm trying to remember the name of the little town, but it, it wasn't that far from Turkey. It ended up not being that far from Turkey. Anyway, they um, decided to put us on house arrest. They gave us to another organization. So sorry, the first organization is not Tahrir al-Sham. I forget what it is, but they're aligned with Tahrir al-Sham. They sent us to another, uh, they handed us over to another gentleman who, or another group of men, I should say, who were actually part of Tahrir al-Sham and who were actually fighters. And they were, we were in the car driving and one guy asked me, do I know so-and-so? And I said, well, yeah, that's my kid's uncle. So there was some kind of alliance between my ex-husband's family and Tahrir al-Sham or members of Tahrir al-Sham. Some of them were actually Lebanese and said that they are actually from the same town as my ex-husband. So we got there. I think by this time they took my phone away. I think I was at that house under house arrest for like three weeks. There were two women who lived in that house, like a, a stepmom and the mom and the daughter, sorry, the daughter's dad, the daughter's husband and her three, four kids. So her and I um, became really good, kind of really good acquaintances. And we had a lot of long talks, like the woman of the house, not the mother or the daughter. Um, the mother is an elderly lady. They showed me a lot about um, what was going on in Syria, the refugee camps, the way that they get their food through the United Nations. It was just, it was eye-opening in a lot of ways. It was also scary in a lot of ways. I never thought that I was going to make it out of Syria alive. I honestly thought that they would kill me once they took away my kids. So I think I was there for a total of two weeks before they took the boys away. And they told me that they were going to take the boys away legally and they, they were going to drive them to Lebanon. I actually found out later on that the boys went back the same way that we came in. So they went illegally through that rugged territory. And on top of that, they actually just stopped at the line in Syria, like Syria, right before hitting no man's land. And they told my boys that they have to, that they asked them something like, do you see that light over there across the way? You have to walk to that light and, and keep going and don't stop. So they made them walk that whole way by themselves. And it was so rough. 
And it was scary, like, when I did it. I can't even imagine these two young kids, seven and eight years old, doing it. And then, and then they, like, were so scared. They said that they heard dogs and they heard guns. And one of them peed their pants, but they didn't stop. Because, sorry, because they couldn't stop. So he just peed and they kept walking. And their dad didn't even have the courage to pick them up on the other side. It was some strange men who picked them up and took them to their dad who was who was waiting for them at their home. And these people accuse me of not being a good mother. <laughs> Sorry. These poor unarrived really feel terrible. Um, I say this every time and I'm like, today I'm not going to break, but every time I think of it, I just fall apart. Of course, they're, they're babies. And and I think what's, I mean, I mean, this is like, I don't, you, nothing you did was wrong. The Canadian government, they should have helped you. And, and they put you in a position where you like, you had nothing, what, what else can you do? You tried everything. So you try to take your babies home and it's ugh, those poor boys. And what happened when I found out later, I was just 20 kilometers from the Turkish border. Okay, I'm good now. Sorry. No, no, you're fine. Okay. So, so your boys, they get back to their home in Lebanon, their father's home. Um, in one of you know the most terrible way we can imagine a seven and eight year olds and this is this is during the the time that there was a war in syria correct correct yes yeah i live i live 30 minutes from the border so i know the area very well it's very deserted and i can imagine hot and not not a not a hospitable to anybody especially not young children so you, you were stuck in syria and then they they sent you to turkey and, and then you made your way back to Canada from Turkey? Yeah, correct. So when I got to Turkey, they put me in like a detention center. I should make note too, the, my acquaintance was with me almost the whole time. In Syria, they put him in jail for the, the whole time that I was in house arrest. They put him in jail. He did suffer a lot in jail as well and was tortured. But on the day that they sent me to Turkey, they brought him. They had lied to me and told me that he left, that they sent him to Canada already. And the day that we left Syria, they brought him back to me. And then we went to Turkey together. And the Canadian government, they do anything during this entire time you were stuck in Syria, you were moved to Turkey? No, there's nothing they can do, they said, because there's no embassy in Syria. I wasn't touched. So the one thing that was really, that struck me as really weird, and until now I tried to process it, and I don't know what I guess I, I kind of came to one conclusion, but I'll tell you what the conclusion is after I say the story. So while I was in house arrest, so they took my phone away by this time. But every night, the men who originally took me, one of them would bring me the, my phone every night to talk to my mom, my dad, and my daughter, and to email the Canadian government. And so it was just a back and forth thing with the Canadian government. I need to go, I need to get out. I need to go to Turkey. Like 
can you please like have visas ready? You know, and I, I was still hopeful that they would do something about my boys. And I asked them to have visas ready for Omar and Abdelghani as well. And they did actually, when I went to Turkey, they asked me, are your boys with you? And I said, no. So they had everything ready, but there was, they couldn't really do anything. And we found out later, like there was, there was a lot of other avenues. There was like the Red Crescent who gets people out. There were other, there were things I think that they could have done or could have tried, but they didn't. So on the day that they took me out of Syria to go to Turkey, they had me meet with their, I guess, like the leader of Tahrir al-Sham or of these few little militia organizations. Again, like my Arabic is not the greatest. So sometimes I, so I forget a lot of their titles, but I met with their president or leader, or whatever you want to call them, their interim leader. And he said he just wanted a meeting with the Canadian government, with anybody. They're letting me go because they want good relations with other governments once they become an established government and that they were actually show the Canadian government that they're good people and that they want to be established and they want to be known as an independent government from the Syrian government, from the Syrian regime. And so I feel like if there was more back and forth, maybe my kids would have came home with me. Maybe that would have like overpowered my ex-husband's ties or and his cousin's ties with these people. And that's the only thing that I can analyze why they were, kept giving me my phone and kept having me talk to the Canadian government is because the leader of their organization really wanted to show off that he was a good person and that their organization is a good organization. I got lucky because they said that like even word got out that there were Canadians traveling through Syria and even ISIS kind of like people from ISIS organization knew about us. And the one thing I think somehow protected me was being under house arrest because my boys are also, both of them have blue eyes and brown and blonde hair. They can be easily picked up anywhere and pointed out. So that's basically the whole summary of, I think, why they didn't end up killing me or hurting me or just letting me go anywhere. They were very in the end, it was okay. But like during the whole experience, there were suicide vests in the house. There were grenades. There were guns, uh, AK-47. I've never been, I've never like seen that stuff or been around it. So it was scary. And at any point of the time, any point of the day after they took my kids away, I was fearful that this was the day that they were going to just shoot me. But then they'd always come and bring my phone back to me so I can talk to my daughter and my parents. It was just weird. It was just, it was an uneasy feeling. But after the fact, when I look back at it, having that connection with my family was comforting for me without me realizing it at the time. And I remember also looking while I was like in house arrest. So I had my own room and my own bathroom in this house. And I had a little, little balcony. So I would sit out at that balcony and just stare at the sky. And every night I would see the Big Dipper. And remember seeing the Big Dipper, like constellations from my my home here in Canada and just like feeling like, you know, I'm going to come back home. But then not knowing for sure, but that was another comfort that stuck to me too. That like, it kept me a little sane. <laughs> so sorry, I got off track a little bit. Um, so yeah, so when I got to Turkey, the Canadian government for my last email said that they will meet me at the border, that everything is set up. 
Oh, and before I got to the border, they asked me to do a press release. So between Turkey and Syria, at this one particular border, there's a long bridge and there's like a little like office building. So all the media was there. They had us do a press release, my friend and I. And I um, said, we better say nice things about them, <laughs> which I thought was funny. But anyway, so a couple of the people who first picked me up and brought me to the that the like house arrest place brought me to the press release and they stayed there and they waited and they watched to make, to make sure I guess that I said nice things about them I don't know so we did the press release and then another car like uh driven by like the Turkish authorities picked us up and brought us to Turkey I have no idea still how that worked out and how that happened. I am just grateful that it wasn't a worse situation than what it was. So we get to Turkey and uh, we get to the border. They asked me about Omar and Abdelgani and I said that, no, they're not with us. The guy kind of shook his head. I think like there was some kind of plan that maybe they were going to bring the boys, but um, it was just me and my friend, Sean. And so we were like, where's the Canadian, where are the officials from the Canadian government? Like they're supposed to be here to meet us. And the guy said that no one showed up. So I was a little disappointed and discouraged. And I was like, even like now they couldn't show up and like they're in a safe zone now. Anyway, so they took us to questioning. They took us to do all these kinds of tests. They took us to hospital, do medical tests. Also, I think uh, tuberculosis and something else just to make sure that we were safe. And then they're like, we're going to take you to a Turkish hotel. And I'm like, what do you mean a Turkish hotel? Like that just, I didn't really get it. And my friend was like, oh, I hope it's a five-star hotel. I'm like, Sean, I don't think they're taking us to a hotel. I think it's going to be more of a prison. And then the one thing I learned in Turkey and in Syria, every time somebody said, no problem, no problem, that means that there were problems. So the guy's like, no problem. We're going to take you to a hotel. And I said, yeah, that's a problem. And then they laughed. It was a quite a funny car ride. It was scary though, but we got to a detention center in the end. And the detention center is a place where they put illegal immigrants. I don't know why we fit in there because I thought we had the visas and that would imply that we were free. But they put us with um, mostly people who were jihadists or just trying to get out of Syria to come to Turkey. There was a few people who were um, from Iraq that were there. I met a, a variety of people. Most of them were like just poor people trying to make it out, you know, with their families out of like really hard countries to live in. And a lot of them were jihadists that were just caught in trying to go to war in Syria. I think we were there for a total of two to three days. The headmaster or chair of the detention center called us to ask us our story on the second day we were there. And I told him and I explained everything about my boys. I explained everything from day one when we left Lebanon to now. And he looked at me and said, I don't believe your story. And if your story is not real, you're probably going to be here for a long time. And I asked him, well, where's the Canadian government? Like they were supposed to be here. And he's like, oh, they're not coming anymore. So he made me believe like the, that the Canadian government officials just kind of left us and that they didn't uh, want anything to do with us. I had somehow, before this happened, they sent me an email the night before we left Syria. And they told me that they will come and meet us at the embassy 
or at the place where the um, Turkish officials will take us. They didn't say where they were going to take us, but they just said that they will meet us and they will pick uh, Sean and I up. So the headmaster, uh, or I don't know what to call the head person of the, the prison or the detention center, but he's told me that they're not coming and that he didn't believe my story and that, and then sent me back to my room, my cage, whatever. So I went back and I was like, how could he not believe? Like, there's no way you can make up a story like this. And anyway, I think the next day he called me again and he had seen the press release that the Syrian officials made me do. So had they not made me do that press release, I might have still been, I don't know how much longer in that Turkish prison. So he said he believes my story now. And then he told me the Canadian government will be here to pick you up uh, tomorrow. So I was getting out. I think it was a total of three days we were there. Again, like I don't have a phone at this time. What happened there is not a blur. It's just the amount of time that I spent there was just, uh, I'm not sure if it was three days or two days. And we got there in the middle of the night and we left early morning. So I cannot know for sure the exact days. So the next day comes and I'm like waiting for these Canadian officials to show up. And I'm like, just, I just want to go home at this point. Like, I don't know, like I haven't seen my family. I just, I just want to get home. And my family at this point doesn't know where I'm at because there's no way I can talk to them anymore. I don't want them to worry too much. So they finally have us escorted out with these two military guys. They don't say a word. We don't know where we're going. I asked them, where's the Canadian government people? Like, where are they? They were supposed to come and get us, I thought. And then the guy's like, don't worry, don't worry. We're going to take you to them right now. They just couldn't make it or something. Again, devastated. Like, how could they not make it? But anyway, we get to the Turkish, um, we get to the airport. And the Canadian governments were there. The two women from the Canadian government from the embassy was there to greet us. And I asked her, I was like, why didn't you guys show up? Like, why, what happened? And she told me that the Turkish officials just didn't let them to the border. And then they didn't let them at the prison. And that they tried to come a couple of times. Anyway, we got our passports to leave the country right away. And uh, we left. Uh, we weren't allowed to stop anywhere. It was a direct flight to Toronto. Uh, to Toronto, Canada. And so that was it. (laughs) Then I was home. So I know you touched on this a bit earlier. I know it's probably a very hard thing for you to talk about, but I just want to talk a bit about kind of the effect this has had on your, on your boys and even your daughter. So, I mean, obviously you talked about, you know, I can't even imagine two young children, you know, basically being smuggled through Syria and then, you know, being told, make your way back to Lebanon, follow the lights, get across the border. Um, But also they were abducted from their sister, their big sister. Um, They were abducted to a country that is very different than Canada. Uh, Culturally, um, just the infrastructure, the, you know, the way of life. And, And now Lebanon in the past three years has been going through a terrible economic crisis and the quality of life has really deteriorated. You know, there's about 75% of the population now living in poverty. So I just wonder how how your sons are handling us, how this has affected them and their well-being. Mm -hmm. So when I do talk to my sons, they seem very upbeat. I know like what's going on in Canada and Lebanon. I uh, like keep up with the news a lot. They seem upbeat only because I feel like they actually wait all week to talk to me and they get so excited when they talk to me and 
I didn't have regular phone calls before I took them to Syria. So there's something there. I don't know what it is that I get them now because I wasn't getting them before. I also notice with my boys that they're tiny. Like I don't feel like they're growing. But again, I'm seeing them through video. I'm seeing the weight loss through like the lens, right? So I don't know for sure, but I feel like other kids grew faster than them. I don't know if that's even true. I don't know if that's me just saying it because I'm devastated that they're not with me and just want to like look for any kind of reasons that they should not be with their dad. And one of them is like, I feel like they haven't really changed much since the last time I've seen them. I wanted to go back and just talk about after Syria. I feel like kids in general are resilient. I don't feel like my boys have had any kind of psychological or um, any kind of other help to get over that traumatizing experience. And sometimes I still blame myself because I did take them and I did I did agree to it. But I honestly thought that I would have made it. And that once I get to Canada, I can be that support or I can get them the help that they need um, to process everything. I don't think they were given that chance. Like I know for a fact their dad really doesn't believe in any kind of like modern education and institutions. And so I don't believe that they were allowed to even talk too much about it, if that makes sense. Now that they were like deprived from talking, but that's the culture that they live in and the bubble that they live in. Just you don't really talk about these things. That's it. God will fix everything and uh, just leave it. Just like any kind of mental health issues is not regarded as something that's very important. So I feel like even my boys don't really bring it up. They did a couple of times when the first few phone calls I got, they asked me actually not to talk about Syria or not to take them to Syria anymore. So I feel like that's, I never really dwelled on it because there's nothing I can do over the phone to help them, to help them like process everything. And I'm just waiting for that day when I will have them back and I can help them with anything that they need. I have studied psychology and I have the tools. And if I can't help, I know that there are people here that can. And mental health issues is something that we regard very highly and that we take care of. The other thing you asked me is about my daughter and it did affect her a lot. She was in her first year university at the time. She had to drop out of a couple of classes. So she ended up just taking one more year. She actually just graduated this month. My daughter left home and came to live with my mom about eight hours away from our hometown to go to university. So she had to leave school when I was stuck in Syria and go and um, given our notice for rent because we were renting at the time and pack up our house, like our old house and move everything. So she went through a lot thinking that I was probably never going to come back. It was in the back of think of all of our mind. So she had a couple of really good friends that helped her out too. And they went back to our hometown, sold a lot of our stuff and got like a moving truck and um, rented that. I had packed almost everything by the time I got back here without them knowing that I was coming back. And um, her dad wasn't so much in her life at the time either. So like I really, her and I are really close. And I think it was more devastating on her than what she let out to be. But I know she went to get counseling afterwards to get help. 
and so did I through um, a couple of programs here in Canada. We got a lot of support from family and friends as well. And the other thing I wanted to like mention earlier, and this is really important, is how close like Omar and Abdelhani are to the end. Their sister, they used to call her Mama Too or Mama Rur because she was like their second mom to them. So even though they don't have the same dads, they never ever had a feeling that they were different from her or she was different from them. They were so much in love with their sister. Until now, they asked me, the first thing they asked me every time we talk is like, where is Rayan? Or can we talk to her? Is she busy? And the other day, and many times they'll tell me, can you just come and visit us, please? Like, we miss you. We want you to come. And then don't forget to bring Rayan and surprise us with her. <laughs> and he's kept them away from her. I think you bring up a really good point about seeking professional help, psychological support. And, you know, many of the people listening to this podcast will probably be left behind parents that are going through very similar things as yourself and feeling all the emotions. So like, what would be your advice to them, whether they be in Canada or another country, how could they handle this, this burden, this emotional burden that's sometimes ongoing? Yeah. And it is quite a heavy emotional burden through my organization, which I think we'll talk about later, but we do welfare phone call checks on like the people who are victims of this in Canada. So we like try to help out. None of us are psychologists and none of us are like have degrees to handle this, but we try our best. And I feel like even if you don't have the expertise and you meet somebody who's been through the same trauma as, as you or the same experience, that shared experience brings you closer and helps relieve some kind of pressure or stress. I feel, um, you know, people handle their stress differently or their depression differently. And it's up to everybody to find their own path to navigate in order to like make themselves better. Like for me, I, I love to go on nature walks and I write a lot. I'll write all my sentiments down. I might not keep the, the paper that I write things on, but just getting it out kind of helps. I find I can talk to, I have a few close friends I can talk to at any time of the day and tell them my problems and that helps. So here in Canada, we have through the police victims unit, we'll set you up with a counselor or a psychologist, someone to help you. So that's what they did with me. When they took the, the police report about the abduction, the police officer himself who was taking the report said, I need to place you into therapy. And I told him at the time, I was like, I don't need it. I just need my kids. Like, that's my therapy. And he's like, no, you need it. We can see, we can tell. And so I went through the victim's unit and they placed me through the women's shelter with a psychologist or, or a therapist. And honestly, for me, I didn't think I needed it till after when I started going. And I was like, yeah, this kind of feels good to talk about it. Sometimes it's not like they can offer anything because most therapists are not equipped to handle this kind of trauma. This is not something that's usual. It's not like ABC. This is just like the emotions are a roller coaster of like XYZ. Like not even XYZ. It's like ZPS. Like it's just not even in order. So you have a lot of ups and you have a lot of downs and you have actually more downs than ups for sure. And it's not something that you can control because it's somebody else is controlling it. When, you know, it's not like I can just make everything better for my mental health 
by just getting, picking up my boys and bringing here. It's their dad controls everything that they do and say, and in effect is controlling me, my emotions, because my emotions revolve around my kids. And, you know, I didn't sign up to be a mother to not raise my own children. Like that's just what I wanted in my life. I wanted to be a mom to these boys. I would advise anybody, you know, I know therapy is really expensive, but through various government organizations, there are programs. After I came back from Syria, I went back to university and did my master's and they actually provided at the university free counseling. And then I felt like that wasn't enough. Like I have, you know, PTSD from what I've gone through in Syria and probably even before. So I applied through my doctor's office after to the Royal, it's called the Royal here in where I live. Um, It's a mental health clinic and one of the best ones in Canada. And I got free therapy through there. So it's not like you have to go and there are programs out there in in Canada and I'm sure in a lot of countries where they offer free therapy and you just have to kind of look. So I got it through my doctor, through the university and through the police. Those are three different institutions. Great. So where are you at now with the case? You know, do you have a specific plan? for how you're going to try and get the boys back? Don't have a specific plan. I am still fighting. I'm on my fifth lawyer. I feel like every single lawyer that I've had before has failed me or has just taken money for the sake of taking money. I think I've already spent about $40,000 on lawyers. I This is the last lawyer only because I know this lawyer has had success before. I'm trying him out. He's probably the most expensive lawyer, but... So far, he got me within six months, he got me calls. And every single lawyer before that has said that they can't get me phone calls or has promised to do it and then said they couldn't. So I got regulated phone calls right now with my children. Been through the courts, has been approved. But like like I said, he's probably going to appeal. He's not abiding by it, but that's on him. My lawyer did what he promised. Um, so the next step is probably to try to come, hopefully to visit my boys one day hopefully have the right to visit like I hate having to say this but I need to ask permission to see my own flesh and blood through the court system of a country that is that may have birthed me but didn't raise me you know it's just it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense that I have to ask permission to have to see my own kids but that's where I'm heading for hopefully so you are Lebanese Yeah, my mom and dad are from uh, Lebanon, from Tripoli, Lebanon. I was born in Lebanon, but I was a month old when we came to Canada. Okay, so I know after everything you've been through, you have decided to help found the NGO Return Our Children Home Canada. Can you tell us a bit more about the work you do, how parents can get involved and, and, you know, the success you've had? I'm actually an activist, like from long before I've been an activist and I always fight for human rights. I never thought I would be fighting this fight, first of all, but I came so throughout my ordeal, like, you know, looking up stories and organizations and like finding, trying to find somebody who can help or who I can talk to. I did come across a few other people who are going through the same situation. And it just so happened that when we first started, I was in communication with three other parents, two men and another woman who all have their children abducted to Lebanon. So it's very important and very clear to me that it's not, in fact, a patriarchal um, situation that's happening in Lebanon, which is what I actually thought so before. 
I do think it's a very patriarchy country, but in this situation, it's about jurisdiction and who lives where. And the fact that these two men, and we were two women, all have our children kidnapped to Lebanon by our ex-spouses proves that it was not just about the men having all the rights. So the two men kind of faded away and didn't want to deal with this. They have already had their children abducted, I think, for, I want to say, as of now, 10 years and more. And so I think they had just gotten tired and were just broken over not being able to see their kids and have any, they, I, I don't even think they had any contact at the time. I think one does now. So it was just really myself and uh, this other woman left. And we talked and we, you know, got in contact with the American woman who also had their kids kidnapped in Lebanon. And then we got in contact with a woman in Australia who also had her kids kidnapped in Lebanon by her ex-husband. So it was the five of us and we called ourselves warrior moms. And we, you know, we would like have little serious talks and we would share information and we would share ideas. And then we put out like these flyers about our, our situation, our cases, and we sent them to the, our different officials. And then we would have like girl night talks and just like, you know, just have a little bit of fun with each other and do video calls. So the woman here in Canada and I started meeting other Canadian parents who are going through the same thing. We have a father whose child is abducted to South America. We have a mom who's very vocal, whose daughter is abducted to um, Iraq. We have uh, a father now whose child is abducted to Japan. Actually, there's a couple of them in Japan and Poland or Europe, sorry. So we started forming our own organization here. We're still part of like Warrior Moms, but it's more of um, a click and it's once in a while. But we decided uh, we needed something for Canada. We needed to make some noise here. So we met another woman also whose children were abducted to Lebanon, very close to my hometown. So we were three mothers and a father. And we just decided that we're going to um, form our own organization and we thought of the name Return Our Children Home. And the color, the logo is a home with the colors of a forget-me-not flower. It took about a year in the making before we launched our website, which was launched in February of 2021. And another year to plan out for its annual national conference, which we had on Parliament Hill on April 25th of this past year. And it was such a huge success. We didn't have quite a lot of people, but we had enough to make the papers and to make a little bit of a dent in the government to get them to hear us. And we had a meeting with Global Affairs during our conference. We had a meeting with the different embassies of representing the countries that have abducted our children. And it's not like we don't understand that these embassies or what the limitations and what the um, actual job qualifications are of these embassies, but to do an embassy walk, to get our voices heard, to let them realize that, you know what, their country might be their country. It might be maybe the best country in the world, but has flaws and has violated human rights. And for them to hear us and for them to like respect us and respect our opinion means a lot. And it might not get any changes done right now, but we know we were heard. We know that there are notes that were being made. And we know that something may come out of someone just voicing, just 
Just saying one word. <laughs> Sometimes it just takes one person. And we're like, we're not in the government. So having officials hear us, having representatives hear us, gives us some kind of hope that one of them, at least one of them will say something. What has happened? These kidnappings are not just kidnappings. They're not like just family issues that Lebanon sees them as or other countries sees them as. These are human rights violations. They're children's rights violations. I just learned recently that my boys are not even in school. They have no respect for any modern education or any formal education. The boys are in an Islamic institution going three times a week and then working. That's a human rights violation. Children should not be working full time. <laughs> they should be here in school and playing with friends. They don't speak any English or French. I told you at the beginning, they were fluent in all three languages. They're only allowed to speak Arabic. <laughs> It's just not right. Like somebody has to do something. These kids cannot be like running in the streets doing nothing. So if anybody wants to join your organization or support or, or you know, get support from Return Our Children Home Canada, uh, is there a website they can visit or social media page? There is. It is uh, Canada.ca. There is my email. We all have our own email, but they can reach me also at jolly, J-O-L-L-Y, at returnourchildrenhome.ca. So that's my own private email linked to the organization. Great. And I will be adding these in the description. So if anybody wants to find the links and your email, I'll put it in the description of the podcast episode. That's awesome. Yes, please. Our organization, we try to educate people about the situation of IPCA and we advocate for different parents and we'll, we'll help like write letters. We'll help join forces with, um, with parents who are suffering or who need the help or who need just to navigate. We can look up information for them. We try to look up information for other, in other countries. We're collaborating with a few other organizations in the U.S. Called, the one is called iStand. One is called Shine the Light. We're trying to network and broaden. We want to focus on Canada because we feel like Canada needs a lot of work in this area and needs to be more assert- assertive, I guess, is the word I'm looking for when it comes to dealing with other countries. So our work is mainly focused with the Canadian government. We do want to broaden and make alliances out- elsewhere because I think we are stronger when we're more. We're stronger in numbers and we can also learn from a lot of organizations and from different styles and different governments. And so our end goal for sure, all of us is to get our children back. But in the process, we want Canada to become more aggressive in in dealing with this because these are Canadian children, regardless of where they were born, regardless of what citizenship they have, they are also Canadian children and they deserve the privileges and they deserve the rights as any other Canadian children and they're not getting it. Absolutely. And you're absolutely right. We have to have one voice. And we also find that we need to have strong data and evidence about how widespread parental abduction is domestically and internationally, because I think most people don't realize 
how often it happens. It's not on people's radar. And so if anybody listening to this episode has been affected by parental abduction, again, whether it's domestically within your own country or internationally, uh, you can fill out a form on our website where we're collecting data. And the goal is to identify trends that we can then use to lobby uh, decision makers to make sure that they have the right data, the right information, and they can you know, do the work they're supposed to be doing to protect our children, to guarantee our children have the rights that they, you know, they were born with. Yeah. The, uh, and that's another thing that we're working with the Canadian government, because we don't have any of that information public. So we're hoping that they would make that public, that it would be something that, you know, we could use and that people could look up data and see, you know, that this is actually happening in your, in our, in our own backyards. I just want to also mentioned that they are two of the most vibrant and most beautiful and most handsome and sweetest boys ever. And like, when I talk to them, that is my only happy moment. And I honestly feel like they just love to talk to me. And we don't get too many like great discussions, but every once in a while, just something like they'll say something and it makes me feel like they really want to be a part of my life. And that's actually really reassuring and comforting because to be alienated and to like have limited connection with a parent could actually cause a lot of animosity and hatred and resentment. And I don't feel like my boys have that in them at all. And I don't know what it is, but my mom says that they're a lot like me and that they still, even if they're not living with me, they still have my personality and my genes and my, like my heart. Yeah. Obviously it's a terrible situation, but I noticed that it is one thing you're lucky with. Yeah, I do count my blessings. I am a very lucky person because I have connection with my kids, a regular connection. and cannot imagine being reunited with my kids after not having contact for years. And I do have a lot of parents in my organization who don't even know where their children are. Sorry, not a lot of parents, but a few. And then a few parents who don't have any contact with their kids at all. And it's just devastating. And I feel for them... And sometimes it's hard for me to even be happy about it because I know like so many are not, are not in the same position. Thank you for sharing your story with us today, Jolly. I can only imagine how hard it was for you to share some of those details with us. And I truly hope that soon you and your boys are reunited. Again, if any of you are listening and you need any support, please check out our website, check out our directory of of lawyers, mental health professionals, mediators who may be able to support you through this journey. And also check the description of this episode where we have linked support services you can reach out to in Canada specifically.